This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by my collaborator and the Tax Museum curator, professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Jeff, what are we talking about today? So we are talking about administrative law and, of course, how it interacts with guests. Taxes. Of course, taxes. And uh, because it's. And, and actually, I, I'm embarrassed to say, Jeff said, let's talk about administrative law. And I'm like, what is administrative law? Like, I don't even know what that is. But of course, I'm an accountant, so I'm not supposed to know all these things about law. But Jeff, who knows a lot about a lot of things, knew exactly what administrative law is. And I knew what it was, just not by the name. So anyway, yeah, so there we today are. Today, we are talking with, we're chatting with Andy Graywall. Uh, Andy, hello. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hello, gentlemen. Uh, my name is Andy Graywell. I'm a professor at the University of Iowa Law School, where I've been for about the uh, past decade. And you're here to talk with us about administrative law. And so let's start off for those of you who are in Scott's boat, who, and you might have heard of like constitutional law, corporate law, tax law, but administrative law might be a new one for some people. So what is administrative law? It is broadly speaking, administrative law would be the procedural rules that executive agencies have to follow in doing whatever they are tasked to do. So if the EPA wants to regulate carbon emissions, it may have the authority to do so, but how it goes about actually exercising that authority, informing the public and so on, would be one illustration of something subject to administrative law. Essentially, what are the rules that the government must follow when it implements the law is a nice short description of administrative law. Well, and that's kind of, all right, this took me beyond my elementary school knowledge of like how laws are made, right? Because it's sort of like, oh yeah, you elect somebody, they go to Congress, they pass a law and we follow the law. But it turns out it's not that simple because sometimes those laws require interpretations. Those interpretations are made by secretaries of whatever department you're talking about, the EPA, for example, and that turns out to be binding for, you know, whoever is under that, uh, administration or that jurisdiction. So it's very interesting. Absolutely. And it's a big deal in the tax world as well, because the, you could look at the tax code all day, you might not find an answer to a particular question. And so if the IRS goes forth and sets forth an interpretation, it has to follow the rules too. And for a long time, until the last couple of decades, the IRS perhaps was fairly charged with not following the rules that other agencies did. So what was the difference for the IRS than other agencies? Well, that's a good question, which uh, a lot of people will disagree with. I think tax folks thought tax is special, but some, including me and Kristen Hickman, a professor at University of Minnesota, argued that tax isn't special and that uh, the IRS and Treasury have to follow the same rules that everyone else did. And so this gave rise to a lot of... Uh, disagreement among academics, eventually culminated in a Supreme Court opinion from about a decade ago, in which the Supreme Court essentially said the tax isn't special. All the justifications for saying the tax are special, that the tax code is so complicated, it's so important 
don't hold water. So what was the, is the Supreme Court case simple enough that we could talk about exactly what it was and why they decided what they decided? Yeah, so the Supreme Court case that dealt with uh, the Mayo Clinic and other medical schools. And there was a treasury regulation that said that if you are a medical student and you work for more than 40 hours a week, then you are going to be treated as an employee as opposed to a student under the federal tax laws. That means that Mayo Clinic and other big hospital, academic hospitals would have to pay uh, payroll taxes. They were taking the view that, yeah, we are working our medical students to the bone 50, 60, 70 hours a week, but this is all part of an educational program. They are not workers. Treasury comes in, again, sets forth the rule saying that if you're working 40 hours a week, we don't care how much you're learning on the job. You have to pay. You, the medical center have to pay payroll taxes. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're going to defer to the IRS under the same standards that we defer to other agencies. That is, we look at this regulation and we will defer to it if it's reasonable, as opposed to carving out a special rule just for tax regulations. So that deference, is that the same? I've heard of Chevron deference. Is that Chevron deference that you're talking about? And, and what exactly is that deference all about? So that's Chevron deference in the special world of tax, which existed until in about 2010, 2011, tax folks invoked something called national muffler deference. National muffler deference gave forth a whole bunch of factors which uh, had to be considered before you would uphold an IRS regulation. And that standard seemed a little bit more exacting. But in the Mayo case, the Supreme Court said, we are going to use Chevron deference. Chevron deference is named after a case involving the Chevron company in which the Supreme Court basically said, if a law is ambiguous, as long as the agency's regu regulation reflects a reasonable interpretation of the statute, we're siding with the agency. So in this circumstance, they said, well, 40 hours is a nice bright line. If you're working 40 hours, sounds like you're an employee. We're not going to get into whether that's the best rule imaginable. It's reasonable. The IRS wins. I see. So when you think about administrative law, well, let me back up just a little bit. A few weeks ago, when Jeff and I had no, no guests to speak to, so it was just Jeff and I on the podcast, Jeff thought it would be very fun to break out the text of the TCJA. I think it was the TCJA, the most it's recent the Build tax Back Act. Better Act. The, oh, you, guys have build back better. Of, you have an odd sense of fun, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, I know. It's an odd sense of fun. And actually, it was the Build Back Better, which actually did not end up passing. But he broke out the text, and there was like, I don't know, 1,500 pages of text or something. And his question to me was, do you know how often the word, the, the phrase, the secretary shall is in this law? And I said, I don't know how many. And he did it like 1,000 times or something. And my understanding is when it says the secretary shall it's sort of asking the secretary of the treasury or whatever it happens to be to basically interpret and kind of figure out exactly how the law should be administrated. Is that, that's, that's an example, I guess, of what we're talking about here, administrative law. Is it common that a law is passed with that many instances of the secretary shall? Very common. And it puts the IRS and treasury in a very difficult place because they shall do 10,000 different things pursuant to statute, and they just don't have the manpower to do so. 
if you look at, take a very complicated area of the law, uh, issues related to the filing of consolidated returns, the actual statute has a couple of sentences. It contemplates that a group of 300 corporations will make one consolidated return under regulations that the secretary shall prescribe. And then those regulations go on for page after page after page after page, even though the actual law is very short. And so all across the tax code, easily at least a thousand times, I would guess, uh, and related acts, the IRS and the Treasury, the Secretary of the Treasury, are ordered. They shall issue regulations on something and on more topics than they could possibly address. So they have to prioritize. I seem to recall, this is maybe like in 2016 or something, during the, I guess it would have been before that, maybe 2014, the Obama administration, there was a an inversion wave where companies were sort of moving themselves abroad and my recollection is the Obama administration kind of wanted to stop this. And it ended up, I think, with a Treasury regulation stopping something that were called hopscotch loans. And what I'm curious about is how often are these regulations administered or, or brought to pass uh, outside of kind of a new legislative action so the, all regulations have to come from some statute. The statute could be old or new. Sometimes uh, the executive branch may think that, well, this is for Congress to do. We don't like all these American companies be becoming political traitors and moving to the Cayman Islands. And eventually, if Congress doesn't act, then the Treasury may issue regulations. But in every case, it has to come pursuant to a law enacted by Congress uh, the Treasury can't just on its own say, you know what, we're going to address inversion transactions. They have to figure out a statute that allows them to do so. So even though the, trans the statute might be very old, uh, a, a particular administration with a certain um, objective might be able to find a statute that then they can interpret in a way that creates a law that maybe didn't exist exactly in that way before. Am I understanding that correctly? And this happens when uh, administrations change. I think the Obama administration, the Treasury, took a strong look at so-called 501c4 groups. These are tax-exempt groups that generally have a relatively large leeway in uh, engaging in political activities as opposed to 501c3s. And the Obama administration came under pressure to restrict 501c4s because they may have $100 million of receipts and they're taking out ads and so on, but it was very controversial after the 2016 election, especially, those regu that regulation project became dead on arrival. So it could be the case that changes in administration will lead to big changes in whether regulations are promulgated or whether they're revoked. And I present that perhaps as a bug, but that's also a feature. That is, people have elections every four years in this country, and it's common, not just in the tax area, for one administration to think one area requires more regulation than another. So that's, that may be a feature as opposed to a bug. Well, and I find that quite interesting because sometimes um, in my naive sort of sense of the political system, I think, oh, what really matters is who do I vote for? Who's going to vote in the Senate or the House? Because that's where the law happen and the president just signs. But what this is suggesting is the president who appoints many of these uh, secretaries that create these laws has a, a really important effect on the way the world works, even in the absence of new laws being passed. 
Yeah, that changed a little bit to 30 years ago. At some point, I believe it was President Clinton who said, you know what, I have all these agencies issuing regulations. You know what, I want these major regulations to come to me, the Office of Management and Budget. And there was a shift 30 years ago for one class of regulations to go to the White House for review. Now, until recently, maybe it's because they thought tax was boring, but for whatever reason, tax regulations did not go to the White House. And then about five years ago, that changed. They decided that tax regulations would go to the White House for White House input. And so now White House, not big tax regulations will go to the White House uh, because of this issue, because you're voting for the president and all these big projects are done without uh, any input directly from the president. If you think about um, this administrative law, over time, have the number of regulations increased, decreased? Does it depend on the administration? Like, how, how does that look over time? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Federal Register, which is where regulations are published, uh, I haven't looked at it, but I assume it's, it just gets fatter and fatter every year. I've never heard of a government publication shrinking. I think President Trump, I don't know if anything came from this, but he had some rule that said for every one rule that an agency issues, they have to withdraw two, which I gather did little more than cause headaches for agency lawyers because I never dug into how this was implemented, but they may have needed one new regulation and they might find a regulation from 1940 dealing with telephones or something and withdrawn. So there are always concerns and you could probably find scare commercials about my God, the tax code has 40,000 pages if you include the regulations and so on. But in any event, whether it's growing fast or slow, I think it's always growing. So one thing that you mentioned that I don't think I realized, actually, and I feel a little bit stupid for not having realized it. So when we talk about the regs, these are regulations issued by the Treasury. I knew that part. But these are always because some internal revenue code says that a regulation can be issued to address that issue. Is that true or is it, it, can it just be like the code was unclear, doesn't ever give permission for the treasury to do it. It just was unclear. So somebody needed to clarify it. Yeah. So sometimes Congress sets forth a flag in the statute itself saying you, the secretary, here's a statute related consolidated returns. We want you to issue regulations dealing with this. But the tax code also includes this blanket authority for the treasury to issue all regulations necessary for the enforcement of this title. So it has this general uh, provision, section 7805 of the code, but again, those must relate to some specific section uh, that exists. It's not just uh, issue any regulation that you think is a good idea. It has to interpret some provision of the code. How often is it that there's some interpretation and or fear that some future regular, you know, some futures administrative, some future administrations, Treasury would like change course. Congress decides to like cement a regulation in place. Do we often replace regulations with it with law to make them more permanent? So historically, we have not had these big fights. That is, I think we have a lot of career public servants in the Treasury and the IRS who do their best to issue regulations. And it would be bad for the tax system if every single time there was a change in political power, there was huge changes in the regulatory landscape. What's new now is in the last 10, 15 years, the tax code is getting um, tasked with politically controversial matters, like the so-called Obamacare uh, statute. 
not only changed healthcare laws, but tax laws. And so now Treasury and the IRS are issuing regulations on these political footballs instead of boring regulations dealing with consolidated returns and partnerships. So I still don't think it's as wild as, for example, regulations related to immigration and border walls and climate change. But I do think in the last 10 years, and as the tax code gets stuffed with more and more things that are unrelated to computing taxable income, we're going to see more political fights and withdrawals and reversals of regulations. But historically, we've had a lot of stability in tax regulations. And as those political fights sort of show up more and more often, do lobbyists get involved? Like, do they lobby does, this, does the Treasury Secretary get lobbied, or how, do, how does that work? Yeah, so tax law is unique among other areas of federal law in that pretty much every year you can expect some type of tax bill or another. And so where there's a lot of legislation, you can expect there to be a lot of lobbying. Now, that's in Congress. It's also the case that the IRS and Treasury, in connection with issuing regulations, may hear from groups. And part of that is by design. Before issuing a regulation, they have to issue proposed regulations to the public, at which point they issue proposed regulations, and then all the lawyers are charged with submitting comments and so on. More controversially, the IRS recently said, let's formalize a process for uh, interested parties to submit information before we formally propose regulations. And that leaves a kind of distaste in some person's mouths. That is, why are some special groups getting special access before the proposal is even out there? But if anyone's been to D.C., you can walk along K Street. There's plenty of lobbying shops, and there's no shortage of lobbying within the tax code. And, of course, that's protected by the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, it, just, it reminds me of, at one point, I went to um, present some research at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And afterwards, uh, they invited me to lunch, but I had to pay for my own lunch. They couldn't pay for my lunch for me because of these sort of strange rules that they have. And I'm assuming that sort of similar things happen. There's lobbying, of course, but there's all kinds of rules that govern lobbying. So you might want to go hang out with, you know, the administrator that's going to affect these rules, but you have to abide by the laws and regulations that govern lobbying, right? So it's not a free-for-all, I'm assuming. Absolutely. And I think those days of big pharma taking a bunch of legislators on a booze cruise are, are over, but, uh, that was certainly the case at one point in time. Yeah. So if you think about um, administrative law, uh, are there any examples of administrative law that you can think of that are like, at least in the tax world, and maybe, maybe you don't know, but if you do, that are particularly noteworthy, that have like generated a lot of change in, say, the revenue that's collected or big changes in the way businesses operate? Can you think of any examples of that type of thing? I'll give you one uh, nice historical example. So for about the first 60 or 70 years of the modern income tax, everyone just knew that fringe benefits weren't taxable. Why would I pay taxes if I get an employee discount? Why would I pay taxes if my uh, company sends me to a golf course? Everyone just knew in their heart that fringe benefits were tax-free. In the early 1970s, the IRS proposed regulations that would have made fringe benefits taxable. And this created a gigantic firestorm, very unusual. Congress came in and passed a statute saying that, the IRS, you cannot issue any regulations on the subject of fringe benefits. Very strange for Congress to tell an agency, you are not allowed to issue your interpretations 
of the law. They said, we're going to do it. It actually took them more than a decade to get Congress to get their act together. But there was surprise, a, surprise. Yeah. But we're in this odd position in which the IRS has to interpret and apply the law, but they weren't allowed to tell anybody their interpretations because Congress didn't want them doing it. Uh, more recently, there's something called your business tax listeners might be familiar with something called the check the box regulations, in which if you set up an entity, you get to essentially choose in a lot of circumstances, whether your LLC is a corporation or a partnership. And that made that opened up Pandora's box for tax planning, and arguably they should have gone to Congress. But because of that action, uh, the, the scale of international tax planning in particular changed. And this was all done through administrative uh, exercise of authority, as opposed to Congress coming in and saying, you know what, we really want people to make a choice. We want people to be able to choose how their entities are taxed. Yeah, and that that check the box thing is something that um, you know I've thought a lot about. Jeff and I have both written quite extensively on like corporate tax avoidance. And if if you've listened to this podcast before, you might have heard us talk a little bit about the double Irish with the Dutch sandwich, or the the green jersey, or the there's all these different tax shelters that often involve they often involve Ireland, but not always, and they involve different tax havens around the world. And and those work in part because there was there's some rules called the subpart F rules. And if you are earning income on certain types of intangible assets, you're earning royalties or so forth, those would be taxable immediately in the U.S. But if you can use check the box rules, it can create a situation where the entities become what they call disregarded. Those disregarded entities basically make it so that those the income from royalties were not taxable immediately. And voila, you can be Apple and earn billions and billions of dollars and leave those dollars abroad and not be taxed. So that would be an example of a regulation that probably cost Treasury like billions and billions of dollars over the course of many years, I would guess. Absolutely. But I understand why they did it, because in the absence of check the box, they had to figure out what every entity was, because the tax code refers to corporations and partnerships, but it's not like the laws of Brazil conform in every respect to the laws of Delaware. And so over and over and again, Brazil may come up with a new entity, just as states in the U.S. come up with new entities. And instead of dealing with this one-by-one decision, they finally threw their hands up and said, check the box. As a consequence, lots of tax planning becomes Yeah, I think I even heard one time that the rise of the LLC in the United States was an important kind of factor in creating the check the box rules because an LLC was designed to kind of act like a corporation, but sort of hopefully be taxed like a partnership. And there is no such thing as an LLC in the tax code. And so it's like, what are you, a partnership or a corporation? Well, check the box and choose. And I guess that's kind of part of what you're talking about. Quite interesting. So when, when we've talked about like these administrative people writing these rules, who are these people actually? Like, is there some specific office that they're with? Sometimes we've said the treasury. Sometimes we've said IRS. What is the background of these people? Who's actually doing this? Yeah, both historically, the IRS had a legislation and regulations division, just attorneys specifically devoted to writing regulations. Now, I believe it's broken out by subject area. So if the regulations deal with international matters, then you would have specialists uh, within the IRS chief of counsel who are helping draft regulations. And the Department of Treasury, too, will be the 
organization that formally issues the regulation, the secretary needs to sign them, and they will have specialists as well. But, but these are not elected officials. And probably most, if not all, elected officials probably couldn't even understand the regulations. So you have career public servants typically writing the regulations. It's very interesting because it's almost like becomes their profession, which sort of raises kind of going way back to my ignorance at the very beginning. You know, in elementary school, I'm taught, oh, there's like a legislative branch. They create the laws. There's like an executive branch and the executive branch, you know, they're the executor. And then there's like the judicial branch. They, you know, judge things. And it sort of feels like those the legislative and the executive get a little bit like intermingled here. And I'm curious what your perspective is on that as a lawyer. Yeah, that's a... That's part of the big debates over the so-called administrative state, that there's so many regulations out there. And on the one hand, this is an innovation in American government. We figured out a way to issue regulations on lots and lots of things, and that makes the world better. Uh, on the other hand, persons might believe that Congress should be involved in every single type of regulation, that this is a way to skirt the Constitution's design uh, I'm inclined to think that things are better with uh, persons issuing regulations within the executive branch. But yeah, there's also this concern that very, very big decisions are being made outside of the legislature, and the legislature is happy. There's a reason they say the secretary shall issue regulations. They don't want to deal with all of this stuff, and they may not be want to deal with the political blowback either. Just punt it over to the president and the executive branch agencies, and they can handle it. And I mean, and Congress would always reserve the right or ha still have the authority to, I mean, just like they did with fringe benefits, say, no, actually, you know, stop regulating in this area or we're going to change what you've done and pass this law if they, if they really wanted to. Yeah. And so a couple decades ago, a statute was passed called the Congressional Review Act. I forget the thresholds, but I'll just say that if a regulation is going to implicate a more than $1 billion change in the economy, a, a draft of that regulation has to get sent to Congress and then Congress, by normal procedures, passing a law can nix those regulations. That was not used very much until, I believe, the Trump administration, because uh, all that statute is doing is saying that, well, Congress can pass a statute overruling a regulation. They could do that anyway. Uh, but between the Obama and Trump administration, this Congressional Review Act got a little bit, little bit more teeth. So formally, Congress can override these things, well, they have a lot of things on their plate uh, and digging into the weeds of consolidated returns regulations and so on might not be at the top of the list. Uh, well, we're quickly running out of time. Uh, Jeff, do you have any final questions? I have nothing as usual. Nothing. Yes, nothing. Well, uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. This is really interesting and I feel like I've learned a lot by chatting with you and I'm sure our listeners have too. Great. Thank you for having me. All right, I'm Scott Dyering. This is another edition of Tax Chats. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jeff Hoops. And our guest today has been Andy Graywall. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.